0: This is the Six Gun Justice podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Howdy and welcome to another exciting episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, television, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Paul Bishop, and sitting next to me, wearing my old buckskins, is my partner, Rich Prosh. Howdy, Rich. How you doing? These things are pretty itchy, Paul. I don't think you washed
1: them, did you? Oh, and you've got them on? Come on, man. I thought they were washed. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you have to dry-clean buckskin, do you? I don't know anything about buckskin. Well, you make sure you dry-clean them before
0: you give them back to me, okay? Will do. Today, we're picking up with part two of our two-part Trailblazers episode, and we're beginning with Daniel Boone's twin brother, Davy Crockett. Come on, don't start going there again. Why not? I actually think it's hilarious. Two of the biggest frontier heroes played interchangeably on television by the same actor, Fess Parker. That's the great Fess Parker to you. I'll agree there. In reality, the great Fess Parker was perfectly cast in both roles, his folksy, amiable personality mixed with a believability as a man of action was exactly right for the time and place. However, what surprised me about Davy Crockett was it was only a five-part miniseries that aired as part of the Disneyland anthology show, the precursor to The Wonderful World of Disney, on ABC from 1954 to 1955. Somehow, those five episodes, starring Fess Parker as frontiersman Davy Crockett and Buddy Epson as his friend George Russell, have loomed so large in the public consciousness that, And in my own imagination, it seems to have run for many more episodes. I
1: agree, and part of that perspective might be because of the explosion of the Davy Crockett marketing phenomenon, as well as the first three episodes being stitched together and released theatrically as Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, and the final two episodes being combined to be released theatrically as Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. And when the episodes were re-released in color in the 1960s after Disney moved to NBC, It seemed as if
0: they were new episodes. And the catchy theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, became a huge hit, further implanting the concept of the show and Fess Parker into pop culture.
1: Absolutely. Earlier this year, Kay Spencer posted on the Western Fictioneers blog about how the popularity of the song had singers scrambling to record their own versions. Bill Hayes' rendering of The Ballad of Davy Crockett reached the number one position in Billboard magazine on March 26, 1954 stayed there through April 23rd. Fess Parker, Tennessee Ernie Ford, Burl Ives, and Mac Wiseman all recorded other versions of the song, which registered on the Billboard 100 in 1955, but none of them made it to number one. However, with the Davy Crockett mania sweeping the world, the song eventually sold well over 10 million copies in all of its various iterations. With music by Disney legend George Bruns and words by first time lyricist and screenwriter Thomas W. Blackburn, the ballad has been listed in the top 100 Western songs of all time by Western Writers of America. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. You know, those are the words we all know, but do we know the next verse and the next verse after that? Nope. <laughs>
0: Aside from the two theatrical Davy Crockett films made up from episodes of the Disney show and appearances in many of the Alamo-related films we talked about in our earlier Alamo-centric episode, surprisingly, there have been few other big-screen or even small-screen iterations of Davy Crockett. In 1916, there was a silly silent film, Davy Crockett, in which the title character is a fearless frontiersman but is very timid around women. As a result, when Eleanor, the woman he loves but can't find the words to let her know, is about to reluctantly get married to another man, good old Davy figures actions speak louder than words, barges in just before the bride and groom take their vows, kidnaps Eleanor, and whisks her away to marry him. I'm not exactly sure how that storyline would go over today, but it was repeated in short Davy Crockett films in 1910 and 1915, but I can't imagine any of them would be recommended viewing.
1: There was also the oddity, Davy Crockett, Indian Scout, from 1950. This film starred George Montgomery as Davy Crockett, but not THE Davy Crockett. Instead, while Montgomery's character shares the same name, he is the nephew of the original. Following in his famous namesake's footsteps, he rescues a cavalry from ambushing Indians while guiding a wagon train through hostile territory.
0: In 1976, Hanna-Barbera produced the animated Davy Crockett on the Mississippi as part of the series of specials aired under the CBS Famous Tales umbrella. It's a mildly amusing adventure, with Davy, Mike Finch, a boy named Matt, and a bear named Honeysuckle getting into adventures on the Big Muddy that have nothing to do with the adventures of the real frontier hero.
1: I don't know what the deal is with Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone either palling around with bears or fighting bears. I just don't get that. I guess that's just part of the legend, right?
0: Well, the Bear Union has a contract with the studios that they get included in all the Davy Crockett and Daniel
1: Boone films, I guess. Apparently, you and I actually know a man who fought a bear. We do. Yeah. Wayne Dundee. Wayne Dundee? Yeah. Wayne did fight a bear at one point in his life. Tell you that, or do you have actual evidence? (laughs) He told me that. (laughs) Like, does he have bear claw scars, or what? (laughs) I don't know about that, but uh, he did. Of course, Wayne is big enough and mean enough to fight a bear, so I'll take that under advisement. This was when he was a younger man, too.
0: (laughs) I think he could still do it
1: today. I think you're right. So the French jumped on the bandwagon in 1994 with two more animated episodes of Davy Crockett retelling some of his more far-fetched frontier yarns.
0: What I found odd with the TV series is the first three episodes, Davy Crockett, Indian Fighter, Davy Crockett Goes to Congress, and Davy Crockett at the Alamo come to an end with Crockett's death, or at least presumed death at the Alamo. However, the last scene in Davy Crockett at the Alamo manages to leave things slightly open-ended, sort of like the season-ending cliffhangers we're used to today, where all looks bleak until things are quickly resolved in the first episode of the next season? In the final scene of the third episode of the show, Davy Crockett at the Alamo, all we see is what has now become the iconic image of Crockett as the last American survivor of the Battle of the Alamo, standing on a parapet, swinging his rifle at the oncoming hordes of Mexican soldiers. The picture fades and the flag of Texas is shown flying in the breeze as the male chorus reprises the last lines of the ballad of Davy Crockett. This is all a bit tricky, You could say Disney was trying to hedge their bets and not kill their golden goose, but they really couldn't have predicted the Crockett hysteria that would grip the world when the show began to air.
1: Perhaps they had an inkling of what was to come and wanted to give themselves an option
0: to do more episodes. Maybe, but then why weren't there a bunch more episodes instead of just two? I'm
1: not really sure of the timing, but perhaps the Davy Crockett craze didn't take off until after the episodes had been stitched together and released as feature films or even later with their repeat showing in color on NBC in 1960.
0: That sounds reasonable, but the sequence of episodes is still odd to me. It's as if episodes 4 and 5 were shown out of order and should have aired before the Davy Crockett at the Alamo episode. I read somewhere that the Walt Disney Company acknowledged the broad public popularity of the first three segments came as a surprise, but then capitalized on its success by the full press licensing of various types of Crockett paraphernalia including coonskin caps and bubblegum cards.
1: Which could also explain a lot because Fess Parker was very disgruntled over the situation. His contract gave him a percentage of the merchandising sales from Disney's company, but he was denied this bonus when the Walt Disney Company claimed Parker's contract was with Walt Disney personally rather than the company itself, costing him millions of dollars from the runaway bonanza of Crockett merchandising. That sounds pretty sneaky to me, Paul.
0: Yeah, that would certainly get your coonskin cap in a twist. Perhaps he simply refused to return to the show under those circumstances. I imagine all of that stuff was worked out by the time he signed a contract to return as Davy Crockett's twin brother, Daniel Boone?
1: Or maybe they did it on purpose to drive old Sheriff Minutia crazy.
0: Oh yeah, that's it all right. Everything is explained. If anyone is interested in more on the Davy Crockett phenomenon, you can check out Born on the Mountain Top, On the Road with Davy Crockett and the Ghosts of the Wild Frontier by Bob Thompson, which is an enjoyable hybrid of biography and pop culture reference.
1: There were also the usual Dell comic Davy Crockett tie-ins as well as other comic adventures from Charlton and the traditional classics illustrated version. There's also a Whitman Davy Crockett tie-in as well as book tie-ins again from both Little Golden Books and Big Golden Books.
0: And there is a great series of eight paperback originals featuring The Adventures of Davy Crockett by the prolific author David Robbins, writing under his David Thompson pseudonym. The Robbins-slash-Thompson books are really good. Dave Robbins, of course, wrote the Wilderness series, which I think is up to 76 books or more now, which really are at the heart of his Davy Crockett tales here. I really enjoyed them, and you can find a cover cavalcade of them posted on our blog. Plus, there's the American Explorer series entry number 11, Davy Crockett Freedom Fighter by Lee Bishop, which I mentioned earlier. After the
1: success of the Crockett miniseries, Disney attempted to create other heroic characters, such as six episodes of The Saga of Andy Burnett, starring Jerome Cortland as a pioneer who traveled from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to the Rocky Mountains, The Nine Lives of Alfago Baca, with Robert Loggia as New Mexico lawman Alfago Baca, and Texas John Slaughter, based on real-life law enforcement officer John Horton Slaughter of Texas, starring Tom Tryon. But none of these caused the same fan phenomenon as Davy Crockett.
0: Disney also produced eight intermittent episodes of The Swamp Fox, starring Leslie Nielsen as American Revolutionary War trailblazer and hero Francis Marion. While well done and enjoyable, The Swamp Fox unfortunately did not bring the same commercial success achieved by Davy Crockett, despite sales of the main character's tricorner hat. In reality, Francis Marion was known for wearing a battered pot on his head when he went into battle. But even Disney couldn't figure out a way to make that look work in a marketing campaign aimed at kids.
1: They should have just put a coonskin cap on him. He did everybody else. <laughs>
0: but my favorite coonskin cap is still the one that John Wayne wore in the Alamo. That thing was alive and whipping around his head like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: with episodes of Davy Crockett. The final two episodes of The Swamp Fox, which are arguably the best of the bunch, were cobbled together for theatrical release. And again, like Davy Crockett, episodes of The Swamp Fox found more viewers when they were repeated, this time in color when Disney moved shop from ABC to NBC in the early 60s. Francis Marion would also get another outing as The Swamp Fox when he was portrayed
0: by Mel Gibson in The Patriot, released in 2000. As we noted in part one of our episode on trailblazers, there's been a number of biographies recently released about these individuals, and the Swamp Fox is no exception. In the action pack The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution by John Aller, we get to meet many colorful characters from the Revolution, including Banistry Tarleton, the British cavalry officer who relentlessly pursued Marion over 26 miles of swamp, only to call off the chase and declare that, The devil himself could not catch this damn fox, giving Marion his famous nickname. But it's Francis Marion himself who dominates the pages. Known as the Washington of the South, he was a man of ruthless determination, yet humane character, motivated by what his peers called the purest patriotism.
1: Which brings us to our final trailblazer for this episode, Kit Carson.
0: The only frontier scout not able to get his own Disney show. I mean, how can you trust a wilderness guide who can't even get his own theme song? He didn't even have a funny hat you could merchandise. All kitting aside. Please, spare me your bad puns. Instead of a Disney show, Kit Carson had to settle for a low-budget kitty western, The Adventures of Kit Carson. It was similar in tone and content to the other youth-targeted shows, such as The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, The Lone Ranger, Rin Tin Tin, or Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. Running for 104 half-hour syndicated episodes, The Adventures of Kit Carson was originally broadcast between 1951 and 1955, but remained a staple of Saturday morning TV for decades. Set after the Civil War, which was an odd choice since Carson was actually active a decade earlier, the show followed the lonely life of rugged cowboy, as opposed to frontiersman, Kit Carson and his Mexican friend, El Toro. The duo roamed the Southwest, righting wrongs and bringing outlaws to justice, while having absolutely no collection beyond a shared name with the actual historical character of Kit Carson. Rugged all-American action film hero Bill Williams, who had starred in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, played the title character of Kit Carson, and Don Diamond played Kit's ethnic sidekick El Toro. Diamond is probably best remembered as Corporal Reyes on Disney's Zorro series, although he would also go on to play Crazy Cat on F Troop. The Adventures of Kit Carson was pretty straightforward, with few surprises and no shades of gray. Like the Cisco Kid, the series served as an unlikely showcase for some of Hollywood's most attractive starlets. While none of these girls seemed to have made it big, no other westerns of the period managed to wrangle such a large and attractive group of disc staff guest stars. Kit Carson only
1: became Kit Carson after a fortuitous chance meeting with John C. Fremont. Before that meeting, Carson was a mountain man of little repute and few prospects. The fur trade was in decline, and Carson's Arapaho Indian wife had died in childbirth, leaving him with a young daughter to raise. In 1842, he was returning on a steamboat from St. Louis after taking young Adeline to be educated in a convent when he made the acquaintance of an army lieutenant named John C. Fremont of the Army Corps of Topographical Engineers who was about to leave on an expedition to map and explore in the West. He was looking for a guide, and Carson modestly admitted he had been some time in the mountains. Fremont hired him, and that first expedition would map what would become the storied Oregon Trail. Carson worked as a guide and scout on all three of Fremont's expeditions for the Corps of Topographical Engineers. In reality, Carson was the great Pathfinder's Pathfinder. Fremont's glowing reports and lavish praise for his guide made Carson a national hero as the American public were fascinated with stories of the diminutive
0: scout. In real life, Kit Carson topped out at five foot six and 140 pounds, and he couldn't read or write. He was a quiet man, used to being alone. His manner was unassuming, and his stoop-shouldered short stature and gentle voice did nothing to reveal the dauntless courage he possessed. He was not, as the dime novels of the day would have it, a giant of a man to rival Paul Bunyan. He couldn't scale sheer cliffs barehanded, and fight off hundreds of Indians single-handedly. But that was certainly what the hero-worshipping public wanted to believe, and nothing was going to change their perception. Dime novels about frontiersmen were
1: all the rage back East, and Carson's high profile was perfect fodder for the outrageous tales. There were over 70 dime novels to feature Carson, none of which paid him any compensation, nor did the writers and publishers ask permission to use him as a subject. And to add insult to injury, they never let the truth get in the way of a good story. These sensationalized stories portrayed Carson as a blood-and-guts giant of a man who slaughtered Indians by the thousands. There wasn't a grain of truth in the action-packed thrillers, but those who had never been west of the Mississippi, and many who had, devoured them. The dime
0: novels fabricated Carson into their concept of a Western hero. Kit Carson, Prince of the Gold Hunters by Charles Averill, depicted Carson as a bloodthirsty mass killer of Indians who ate their hearts with his breakfast, and even credited him as the man who discovered gold in California. Another pulp from the day showed Carson on horseback, holding a beautiful, scantily clad woman in one arm, while fighting off Indians with the other. It's probably apocryphal, like so much else about Carson, but the tale is told that when Carson was shown that cover, he glanced at it and modestly replied, That thar may be true, but I ain't got no recollection of it. And therein lies the rub, Rich. The difference between Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, and Kit Carson was in their heroic perceptions. Crockett and Boone were portrayed as kings of the wilderness, always on the right side of a fight, always friendly and compassionate when not in the middle of the action. Carson, on the other hand, was called the Indian Killer and was depicted as a man whose only goal in life was not just to kill, but massacre as many Indians as he could, especially if they belonged to the hated Blackfoot tribe. This is hardly Disney material, despite it being nowhere near the truth.
1: Still, the early movie studios loved the concept of Carson. Between 1903 and 1928, there were four silent movies produced featuring Kit Carson. From 1933 to 1947, Hollywood produced four Carson talkies. Fighting with Kit Carson was a 1933 serial with Johnny Mac Brown as Kit. The return of Kit Carson in 1947 with Noah Beery as Kit was next. Sammy McKim appeared as Kit in The Painted Stallion in 1938. Then, Wild Bill Elliott was Kit in 1939's Overland with Kit Carson. And finally, 1940's Kit Carson starred John Hall as Kit.
0: Disney did eventually get its Kit Carson on in 1977, releasing a two-part TV movie, Kit Carson and the Mountain Men, with Christopher Connolly as Kit and Robert Reed as John C. Fremont. But none of these screen kits even came close to the original. As I talked about in the first part of our episode on Trailblazers, there was a 14-book American Explorer series published by Dell, each book featuring an individual trailblazer as their focus. And book six, Kit Carson Trapper King by Laura Parker, is the Kit Carson entry in that series, and worth digging up if you can find a copy. In 1986, CBS produced Dream West, a miniseries biopic of John C. Fremont, starring Richard Chamberlain as Fremont. The secondary role of Kit Carson was played by Rip Torn, who at least manages to look like the portraits of Kit Carson. It's not a bad TV movie, and it does a good job of giving the viewer a non-sensationalized and more plausible portrayal of Carson.
1: There have been several good documentaries about Kit Carson. The History Channel produced Carson and Cody, the Hunter Heroes, in 2003, and in 2008, The American Experience, produced by PBS, was a film biography, which at last came closer to showing us something of the true Kit Carson.
0: And it's a shame it took so long to get a relatively realistic presentation, because the real life of Kit Carson would have made a fascinating and thrilling film, which I doubt we'll ever get to see. Rich, there are so many other Western trailblazers, from Jim Bowie to Jim Bridger. We just can't cover them all in even two episodes. I think we'll have to look ahead and see if we can do another episode on down the line here and talk about some of the other great Western trailblazing explorers.
1: There's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle partner telling us to wrap up this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to our other sponsors, author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America. Thanks to Roundup Magazine for their support in promoting our podcast.
0: Thanks to our crew of Patreon backers for their financial support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash sixgunjustice and consider giving a small monthly stipend to help us keep moseying along. Donations are appreciated, but clearly not expected or necessary. We're grateful for all our listeners and truly happy to have you sharing this trail ride with us. Next Monday, ride along with Rich as he catches up with best-selling author Tony Healy, who, in a Six-Gun Justice podcast exclusive, We'll be reading directly from his new Ralph Compton title, The Devil's Snare. They'll also be telling you everything that you need to know about writing for the Ralph Compton brand, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, we'll be back with episode 34 of the Six Gun Justice podcast, Town Tamers.
1: And don't forget our Six Gun Justice conversation segments every Wednesday when either Paul or I get to hang around the Six Gun Justice Corral talking with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do.
0: Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your trails blazed. Adios for now. We're out of here. Let's ride.